0: Uh, I told John already that um, I do not like teaching from a computer and I don't like it when people do, uh, but I'm going to do it So um, just because I walked out of the house without printing my final talk and my notes. And then, I mean, I change them all anyway as we go, never stick to the outline, so um, here we are. Uh, let's read together from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. This is God's holy word. Um, I'll pray. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for help as we think about it, and we ask that you would meet with us now. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so uh, we've been looking at what it means to be human, and we've talked about a lot of different things. And so we'll wrap it all together today by thinking about humanity fallen and humanity redeemed. Uh, So I've rearranged that line just a little bit. Let's think about expressive individualism first and then uh, naked and ashamed, and then the holy city, okay? So first, expressive individualism. Uh, the question here, and this is really the question of this talk, is what is the principle of sin? So what is, uh, what is wrong with human beings? Uh, so what is, the theologians would say, what is the organizing principle of all sin? Uh, another way to ask that is, what is the sin underneath all sin? So if you get to the very bottom of what's wrong with us in the world, what is it? What is that exact thing? Uh, so that's the question, really, of this, this whole session we have together. And we, we read about it just now in Genesis chapter three. So I wanna unpack it a little bit and think about it with you. Uh, and here it is. You can see when the serpent comes to Eve, we, we can't, unfortunately, we don't have time. Uh, you'll have to come take, take systematic theology class at ETS. And you'll have time to think about the meaning of the serpent and all these sorts of things. But... Uh, The serpent comes and says, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, don't eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here it is in verse four. The serpent said, you won't really die. You won't surely die. God knows your eyes would be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden to Adam and Eve. And the serpent says, Uh, Here's the thing. If you eat of the tree, you will be like God because you will know good and evil. Now, this little phrase, knowing good and evil, shows up across the Old Testament, not just here. And the concept shows up quite often. What does it mean to know good and evil? And actually, when you read across the Old Testament, you realize that this phrase is a reference to wisdom. So it shows up in the book of Proverbs and in other places. To know good and evil means the ability to discern between what's right and wrong, the, the ability to discern good and evil. And you can see that that's the idea here because just after that, it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired. Why? Because it could make one wise. So she says it. she realizes that if I eat, I can become wise. I can know. And here that means that the idea of eating from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, Is that uh, she looks at it and she thinks, if I do this, and the serpent tells her this, then I can become like God and have the ability to discern and know the way that God discerns and knows. I can be wise like God is wise. And so she she chases after this thing uh, in a way, basically, uh, basically, the knowledge of good and evil is this, is to have the ability, capability, and being to know and do as God knows and does. So it's, it's to have the very mind of God, to have the wisdom, uh, the power, the might, the ability that God has. So she thinks she can possess the wisdom of God as God has it if she eats. Uh, and so she says, it can make one wise and so she takes and she eats. So it's, it's seeking the wisdom of God, the power of God, the ability of God, the being of God, apart from the way God told them to seek it. Okay, so that, that's what it means to take and to eat from this tree. Uh, she wants the abilities of God, the wisdom of God, without it being the gift of God to her. So God, God's telling Adam and Eve that eventually, if you obey and I bring the consummation of the kingdom, I'm going to give you the wisdom of God. That's ultimately a promise that's in her future. Uh, this is the way she wants to take and, eat it for, take and eat for herself, to get the wisdom of God in the way that God had not prescribed Right, So this is the opposite of wisdom, it's foolishness. That's how Proverbs puts it, right? Now, right here we've got the, uh, the progress of sin and how it happens, and this takes us to the, the organizing principle of what sin really is. And here it is, you can see it in verse six. Uh, in verse six, this is very important. She says, it says, Moses says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eye, Okay, so he says that the first way that sin happened is that she looked out and she sees something that is a delight to the eye. And then right after that, so it's the eyes first, and that the tree, the thing she saw, she desired, it could be desired to make one wise. right, so this comes back up again in James chapter one, verses 13 to 15, or 15 to 17, 13 to 17, just read all four. And you've got there a philosophy, if you will, in the New Testament of how sin takes place. And it follows exactly the order of this verse, Genesis 3, 6. And here's what it says in both places. It says, first, you see something creaturely and you want that creaturely thing inordinately. So Augustine said, this is an issue of disordered desire. It's when you look out in the creaturely realm and you see something that you want and you want it more than you want God himself. That's the meaning of the word lust. So the New Testament, we, def- we translate that as lust. So you can lust after anything. Uh, lust is not just a sexual term. It's a term that applies to anything in the creaturely realm that you want inordinately. You want too much. You want a good thing and you want it more than you want God himself. Okay. So in other words, this is just the precious ring. Uh, she sees the precious ring and she wants it. She delights in it. Uh, that's what the word delight means here. It means to lust after something. Uh, to lust after something more, uh, it becomes lust because it's a desire for something in the creature realm more than you want God. You want the God who made you in his image, right? So you see with the eyes and then the eyes of the heart lust after that thing. You want it because you love it more than you love God. And then what happens next? It says in verse six, uh, there's sight, there's the sight of the heart, the desire of the lust for the disordered thing. And then that desire from the heart moves from the eyes of the heart outward into the hands. And so it says immediately, then you take and you eat. All right, so that's how sin works. And uh, that's exactly how James 1 puts it as well. And when she takes and she eats, uh, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time, Derek Kidner the great commentator, he wrote a really famous commentary on the Psalms, but he says this about it. It says, she took and she ate. Now listen closely, okay? So simple the act, so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat can become verbs of salvation. In the beginning, take and eat. Take and eat, verbs of destruction. And God's going to have to taste poverty and he's going to have to taste death in order that one day taste and eat, take and eat, can become verbs of salvation again. Uh, What is the principle of sin? All right. Well, we might answer it like this. The first thing we see here is it's idolatry. It's wanting something more in the creaturely realm than you want God. It's loving something more than God. That's what happens here to, to Eve. Uh, We lust after something. We see it. We think it's a delight. We think it will fulfill us. It will satisfy us. And so we take and we eat. And that's what happens there. Now, there, however, is something underneath that. That's not actually the organizing principle of sin. That's the symptom of the organizing principle of sin. Idolatry is what happens when something else has already happened. Why do you have an inordinate desire for things in the first place that are not God? And here it is. Uh, It's when Satan, the crafty serpent says to her, says to her, look, if uh, if you take and you eat, don't you want to be like God, knowing good and evil? And the real principle of sin. And if you read the theologians, you read the systematic theologians of history, you read the reformers, you read everybody. Augustine, they all say it. It's the same thing. The organizing principle of all sin is self-centeredness. It's self-centeredness. Uh, it's when Satan said, do you want to be like God? And Adam and Eve said, yes. Uh, meaning, I don't just want to be like God. I, just don't, I don't just want to have the power and the wisdom and the ability of God to discern good and evil. He was saying, do you want to be God? Uh, the, the God of the universe made you, but if you take and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can actually be akin, equal, at least on the same playing field. Uh, it's, it's self-centeredness. It's that I have a master of the universe who made me and defines me objectively, but I don't want that. I want to be able to make and define myself. It's self-centeredness. Self-centeredness, self-interest leads to idolatry. So we look to the creaturely realm to find fulfillment, to become the master of our own universe and the things around us uh, so that we can curate our own identities. So self-centeredness, now the, the older way of saying this uh, the way Augustine and, and somebody like Bob Winkle will say it is that the, the organizing principle of all sin is egocentricity, all right, which just means you're selfish. But that's the cooler and fun, more fun way to say it is it, the this organizing principle of everything that's wrong with the world and us is our egocentricity. And that's what leads to idolatry. All right, it's the foundation of all that's wrong with the world. Now, let me uh, move on and take you over to the Tower of Babel. Just just listen. You can, you can turn there if you want. Genesis 12. Uh, but, uh, sorry, 11, not 12. It's the call of Abram. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Uh, but this is exactly what plays out. So from Genesis uh, 3 to 11, um, what you have is a series of fall okay. stories, fall narratives. Uh, Genesis 3 is the fall But if you read Genesis 3 to 11 really carefully, what you'll see is that these fall narratives keep happening and repeating themselves. So let me give you one other uh, quickly. Um, Right after the flood story, God decreates the world and then recreates the world by the flood. And what do you have? You have uh, You have Noah, this next Adam, come out of the ark with his family. And the very next thing God says to Noah is what? Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth. It's the repeat of the Genesis 1 command. And he's saying, we're starting over. Creation has happened all over again after the flood. Judgment and now creation. And then Noah and his son Ham, they fall in the incident with uh, Noah and the tent. Right? There's a fall story. And this keeps happening over and over again. The next fall story after Genesis 3 is the story of Cain and Abel, fratricide. Uh, killing of the brother, and it, and it goes on, and then Lamech who builds the first ungodly city, and over and over again, it's a series of fall stories. Genesis eleven is the climax of the fall series in the in the uh, early early world, and that's the Tower of Babel. Now, what happens there? Uh, just in two minutes, in in the Tower of Babel story, they say they gather this city. It's the the proto Babylon, and they say, "Let us build a city." There's all these "Let us" statements. And they say, let us build a city, so what? And they say, so we can make a name for ourselves. So that's the big idea in the Tower of Babel story. We want to gather this city, Proto-Babylon, so that we can make a name for ourselves. And to do that, they build what's called a ziggurat, which is an ancient religious temple, uh, up to the heavens, as tall as they can. Um, And the idea there, it's implied and it's subtle, But why? They are doing it because they want to get as high as they can into the heavens. Remember, they want to reach the third heaven and they want to slay God. That's the idea of the Tower of Babel and the ziggurat that they build. Why? Because they say, we want to make a name for ourselves. Now, remember what we said about naming uh, yesterday. Yesterday, we said that in the Old Testament, when you name something, you define its essence. You're saying that is actually what you are. You are your name. You are Avraham. You are the father of nations. And so when the, when the early Babylonians say, we want to make a name for ourselves, they're saying we're going to build a tower to the heavens. We're going to slay God in the third heaven, the God who made us, so that we don't have to compete with him to be the master of the universe. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be, we want to be what we want to be. We want to define our own essence. We want to be able to name ourselves. It's the exact same sin that takes place in the Garden of Eden. It's egocentricity. It's self-centeredness. It's fallen humanity. It's exactly what's wrong with us. Uh, What is wrong with with me and what is wrong with you is that we're self-centered. And that's the the big idea in all of the fall stories that we see that take place. Um, Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, he wrote a a really important book called The City of God. Uh, And he wrote it right after the fall of Rome. Uh, the beginning of the fall of Rome. So Alaric and the Goths, Goths, uh, sacked Rome, in what was it 410, I think, and uh, and all the the rich Romans, you know, fled the city so that they wouldn't get um, murdered and stuff like that. And he wrote this book, The City of God, because what happened was the Christians who were in Rome when it got sacked said we thought that Jesus was going to come back to Rome and that Rome when it adopted Christianity as an official religion, was becoming the city of God. And then all of a sudden, God let the, Vic- uh, the, the Visigoths, not the Vikings, that's, that's way too early, the Visigoths uh, attack the city and destroy it. Where is the, what is happening? And Augustine said, you are very confused. Rome is not the city of God. Rome is the city of man. That's what he said. And Augustine coined this term that he got from the Old Testament. And he said, there are two cities in this world. There's the city of God and the city of man. And in the beginning of human history, God said to Adam and Eve, to humanity, remember, build a prophetic community. Build the city of God. The city of God is where the image of God images God. And the city of man is where human beings choose to be egocentric. And to slay God and say, I want to be the master of my own universe. I want to define who I am. I want to name myself. And Augustine said, humans ever since Genesis 3 have only built the city of man, and only God can rescue us and build the city of God. And the Tower of Babel is that great city of man, and it's proto-Babylon, and in the rest of the Old Testament, what do you have, and the New Testament, what do you have? You have Babylon being the great metaphor for everything that's wrong with the world. The city of man, egocentricity, self-centeredness. It's the prototype of everything that's wrong. Now, let's move on. This is our longest point, by the way. It gets shorter and shorter, so don't be afraid. Uh, Robert, Bella, Robert Bella is the uh, soci- late sociologist in the States that coined the term expressive individualism. And he used that term to describe what's wrong with, the mo- with modern people. Uh, you'll read all about it in Carl Truman's book. This is like the fifth plug for that book out there on the table. I don't know if you can still buy books. Yeah, yeah. Maybe one more of that. One more of that left. Go get it. Um, Robert Bella said that modern people are expressive individualist. And this is what an expressive individualist is. It's when we say, I make my own meaning and I curate my own identity. I don't receive my identity from the outside, objectively, from what others say about me. Instead, my identity comes from the way I feel. It comes from inside. It's, I'm an expressive individual. So what I am as an individual is expressed from my feelings outward. So he says that's the difference in pre-modern people and modern people. We've talked about that already, right? But actually, while that is a unique aspect of modern identity, it goes all the way back to the beginning. Expressive individualism has always been the problem. It's that I do not want to be told what I am objectively from the outside, particularly by God, I want to be able to name myself. I want to be what I want to be. I want to be able to be my essence according to the way I define my essence. Uh, It's egocentricity. It's self-centeredness. It's always been that way. Uh, From from the garden to Babel to us, to modernity. It's always been that way. Um, We'll we'll move on. Let me give you a, a quote from Keller about this. He says, what does it mean to go make a name for yourself? If you need to make a name for yourself, that means two things. First of all, it means... I want to know I'm valuable. I want to know I'm not just a nameless cog in this world. I want to know I'm someone special. I'm not just a little cog in a machine, not just a cipher, not just a number. A name means I'm someone valuable and someone worthwhile. And secondly, it means I'm someone distinct. I'm not the same as anybody else. I've got a purpose. I know what I'm about. I know what I'm. I know who I am. now. In Genesis chapter three, whenever, whenever Satan said to Eve, do you want to be like God? Do you want to be a somebody? You know, right now you're just a cog in a machine. You're a number. But if you eat, you can, you can be like God. You can be as great as he is. What should she have said? Now you've listened to three talks on, on theological anthropology. You should be able to get this. What should she have said? She should have said, I already am like God. What do you mean? I can't become more like God than I am. I am the image of God. I'm the crescendo creature. Uh, God has already given me his glory. I already am like God. He said, do you want to be like God? And she, and she forgot to say, I'm, I'm his image. What do you mean? And I, in, instead, she wanted to define her identity from the inside, not from the outside. She became an expressive individualist. Uh, she said, she said, I already am his image. And of course, Adam should have stepped in and said, she already is his image and I am too. But instead they both ate, they they took and they ate. All right. Um, I keep saying I'm going to move on to the next point. Let me tell you one more thing (laughs) for you. Uh, what, what, what does egocentricity lead to? Here it is. The final thing at this point. Um, It means this, Uh, it's the egocentricity and self-centeredness is the ultimate denial of being made in the image of God. So remember, you you are the image of God. That's your essence. You can't help it. You can't get out from that. And yet you can also deny that by denying the vocation you've been given, by not acknowledging it, by not turning to the God in in whose image you have been made. So you, you are the image of God, yet you can deny it. And this is what happens uh, when we do that. In Daniel chapter four, remember Babylon, the great image of the city of man throughout the whole Bible? Uh, the great king, the serpent of Babylon in the Old Testament is Nebuchadnezzar. He's an image of Satan himself. And Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four comes out onto his balcony after he's done it all, conquered everything. He's the king of Babylon, the king of the city of man. And what does he do? He says, um, he says, "You know, look at what I did. Look at what I built." He says, "I've defined myself. I am truly great. I am. I am God Himself. I'm divine. Uh, I am the great, the great creature of the world. I'm. The, I'm. I'm even. I'm even. A, I'm even a demigod." That's what Nebuchadnezzar thought. And he stood on his porch and he said that. And what did God do? God gave him feathers, right? And he sent him out into the field to eat the grass. And Nebuchadnezzar grew, grew claws. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar became a beast. Now remember, humans were made in the image of God to rule over the beasts of the field, to take dominion. And God is saying there that our egocentricity and our self-centeredness and our sin does what? It dehumanizes us. It's that every time we turn inward in self-centeredness and away from God and being the image of God, it's an act of dehumanization. So you can't help but be the image of God, but sin does dehumanize us. And Nebuchadnezzar is the great example. Babylon is the great example. We become beastly. Self-centeredness makes us beastly. More like the animals, less like God. That's the big idea. Secondly, briefly, uh, that means that we are left naked and ashamed. So we talked about how Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed and that that not just is a, it's not a mere reference to clothing, or not. It's more it's something more than that. And here we read about it. Verse seven. The eyes of both were opened, and that they, they knew that they were naked. So they had to sew fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths. Um what does this mean? Uh, I said it a couple of talks ago, but let me illustrate it. Um maybe you had a maybe you've had some kind of dream like this before. I think this is a, a dream that people have commonly, or at least sometimes in their life. Um you know, you're in, this could be all sorts of instances, but let's say that you're invited to a, a black tie affair, you know, a, a ball, a, something really significant. Um, you're meant to wear a tuxedo or a, a, a beautiful dress, you know, a very formal dress. And you show up and, you know, you wear shorts and t shirt. You got flip flops on, you know. Even worse, you should, in your dream, you show up, you know, to this great, court ball that, that King Charles throws and everybody's so dressed up and uh, you're wearing your bathing suit. you know. And there are, there are places where you can wear shorts and a t-shirt, sweatpants, bathing suits and you feel fairly normal. Fairly normal. There, there, there are places and context for that. But if you show up to King Charles court to a great ball uh, in shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops at a black tie uh, ball, what, what's gonna, what do you feel like? You know, you, you want to run and hide, right? You want to go straight to the, to the toilets and sit there until it's over uh, because you, you, what, you, you know how you feel. You feel completely exposed, naked even. And that's exactly the meaning of this. When Adam and Eve turn inward, when we turn inward and become self-centered, egocentric as we are, uh, we are exposed. We're exposed and we know it. We feel it. That's called guilt and shame. And that's what it means to be uh, naked and ashamed. And we know it. And so immediately uh, they have to hide. We've, we've talked about this already. This is the first great curtain in the temple. They have to stand behind the rock when the great wind of God comes into the, uh, into the, into the space. Now, look, I said that on the first day, I'm gonna be teachy, not preachy, but at the end of our time, let's be more preachy now. Because um, we're about to be done. Uh, you're exposed before God. He sees it. He sees it all. I'm exposed. Um, he, he knows everything, every thought, every act, every idol, every depth of self-centeredness in you and me. Uh, do not hide before him. You can't. When he comes and says to Adam and Eve, you know, where are you? It's not like he didn't know. He knew. <laughs> he knew exactly. Well, why are you hiding from me? He knew. That's why he came. But he came in that moment no longer as friend, but as judge. Our self-centeredness turned our relationship with God from friendship to judgment, uh, from access to being closed off to exile. And um, just to to wrap up this idea, remember uh, we talked about on the first talk, the glue of creation, order and harmony, what makes it all organic and one in its many parts. And we said it's the love of God for what he's made. That's the real glue. And uh, I said that the love of God is, is the glue of everything. And that's because um, the way that plays out is that every single one of us today, Adam and Eve too, you want to be known for who you really are, as you really are, and loved nevertheless. Right. So, so the great hope of humanity is that somebody greater than me would know me to the bottom and love me to the sky, right? And God knows you to the bottom. And despite your self-centeredness, loves you to the sky. Uh, that's the meaning of Genesis 3. He comes and they hide from him. He knows them to the bottom. They're, they're completely exposed. They wear their bathing suit to a black tie gala. And yet he loves them to the sky, nevertheless, you know, um, just before this, in chapter two, verse 17, God had said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will, and the English here says, surely die. The Hebrew says, you will die, die. That's how, that's how it's written. Uh, meaning, if you disobey me and you seek after divinity in a way that I have not prescribed for you, you're gonna die all the ways you can die. You know? uh, you're gonna completely die. This will be a death, death. And yet, when they do exactly that, Adam and Eve live longer than any of us ever will. And they don't get what they deserve. They don't. Instead, they get Genesis 3.15. Instead, they get God saying to them, one day, because of what you've done, I will destroy my son for you. That's what they get. <laughs> they don't die, die. He knows them to the bottom and loves them to the sky. And so Jesus will die, die in their place. Uh, The son of God, God himself, remember, will taste poverty and death so that take and eat can one day become verbs of salvation. Uh, Now Jesus can turn to you and say, take and eat my body, my blood. Uh, He knows you. He knows you all the way to the bottom. He loves you all the way to the sky And Jesus. Now, lastly, um, we, that means that we need to recognize our need that we were made uh, for the city of God, not the city of man. Um, the, and the, this is the final idea and we'll be done for the week. Um, r- remember, again, we are made in his image and we are commissioned to build a prophetic community, a holy nation. So God says, be fruitful and multiply spread the Garden of Eden. It's not meant to just stay here. One day I'm gonna bring heaven down to earth fully. The whole cosmos will be my realm with you. That was the big idea. That's what we've talked about already. Uh, I just wanna conclude by talking about this holy city through just one image, one image, and we'll be finished. And that's uh, the very fact that they were made and put into a garden. We were made to be in God's garden. Um, God put Adam and Eve in a garden at the beginning of time. We've said over and over again this week that that garden is a temple. So a temple is just a place where God chooses to condescend and live. That's a temple. And the first temple on earth ever was the Garden of Eden. And so the Garden of Eden was God's garden temple that he just said, I'm gonna make this my home with the human beings. So, so God wants to be at home with you in his garden temple, that's always been the idea from the beginning. And we messed that up. And as soon as we messed that up, we get exiled. You know, so God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden temple, and He puts a cherub there with a flaming sword. Uh, why? He says, "You, you can't, you can't have access. You cannot have access to the garden temple. Self-centeredness cannot be here." And <clears throat> then uh, He gives them a system of recovery. And that system in the Old Testament is the tabernacle and the temple, right? The sacrificial system. And when he gives the instructions, go back and read through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and read the instructions for the temple. I think you guys studied Leviticus last year. How is the temple decorated? What does the temple look like? The temple is wrapped in cloth. These are the walls. And the cloth have embroidered all over them plants right? That's what the temple looked like. It was colorful. It had plants all over it. And you go inside the temple and the furniture, the furniture, let's think about the menorah, the candelabra that sits, that's lit. That's a symbol of God's presence. What did God tell them? This is the menorah. This is the symbol of the tree of life in the temple. You see, the temple of the Old Testament looked like a garden. It was meant to mimic Eden because humans were made to meet God in God's garden temple. And then in the gospels, In John chapter 19, verse 41, Jesus Christ exhales his last breath and he dies. And John puts in this little phrase, Now, next to the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And so they took him down and they put his body into a garden. And Jesus enters the garden dead so that when he wakes up, when he rises from the dead, he can dismiss the cherub and say, now, because of the, the man who went into the garden, the, the second Adam who went to the garden and rose from the dead in the midst of the garden, you can have access to the garden again. You can come into the garden temple. The curtain's torn in two. You can come and be a part of God's garden temple, his holy city that he's building. And then at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22... Uh, we, We hear John say, I saw the holy city coming down to earth, prepared as a bride adorned for her groom. All right. That was earlier in the week. And then Revelation 22. And at the center of that city where there was a marriage and a wedding supper, there was a river. And in the next to the river, there stood what? The tree of life. And that means that the whole point from creation to new creation is that God is establishing a garden city in the whole cosmos where he wants to be with you. And so he became a wiggly little baby because the meaning of humanity is that God wants to be close to you. And that's what he's been up to. Now, last word. Uh, That means that the marriage supper of the lamb is coming. God's garden city is coming. And if you know that you're self-centered and you turn and repent and confess that and stop hiding and cling to, to the God of the garden, the God who went into the garden, buried and came back to life again, Jesus Christ, uh, then you're, you're, you're fit. You're going to be in the garden city of God. And that means that if the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming and the garden city of God is on its way, uh, everything's going to be okay. And no matter what's going on in your life right now and no matter, no matter, uh, you know, some of you, this has happened. Uh, there will be a point in your life where um, the earth will give way beneath your feet. And it will all go bad. That it's it's. There's three three levels of our relationship to suffering in this life. Uh, either it's happening to you, it happened to you, or it's about to happen to you. Okay, that's your relationship to suffering. Uh, the earth is going to give way beneath your feet, but the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming, and the Garden City of God is coming. And so, uh, take and eat have now for you become verbs of salvation, and that means. Uh, that you are in his image and in Christ, you will be fully human. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask uh, that you would, that you would just simply help us uh, to, to long uh, for the image of Christ, the image of God himself, Jesus Christ, more and more right now as we uh, realize the depths of our self-centeredness. So I do pray uh, that you would do the hard work in us of exposing us and showing us really, um, the depth of how egocentric we are so that through it and out of it, uh, we, would, we would give it all away and we would let go and we would become less and less selfish all because uh, we've been changed by the power of uh, the one who deserved to be focused on self yet became ultimately selfless. You are Lord Jesus. And so uh, teach us this above all else as we learn more and more in our lives what it means to be human. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.